Rob Steen, Professor Rob Steen, retired Professor Rob Steen. No, 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 no. I get called Professor a lot, but I'm not. I, I, I kind of rejected the whole PhD professorship career route. I'm afraid to say. Well, that's that's odd because you have written several books, not just the Sonny Liston uh, biography, David Gower's book, A Man Out of Time. Um, and floodlights and touchlines, uh, but you are also the co-author of this, the Cambridge companion to football, Jed Novick. Novick. Yeah, my best friend. Oh, uh, wicked! Oh, the one who got punched in the face in the first half. No, no, the other, the now best friend. Oh, I see. <laughs> yes, because you you lectured together in sports journalism at the University of Brighton, and Hugh Richards as well. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, Jed and Rob have autographed this copy, which makes it damaged. I find that hilarious. <laughs> how the hell did you get that? I don't know. I how think you, I must how have... How did you get autographed book? We didn't even have any signing sessions. Somebody, I've signed the book for people, but um, I can't remember doing it with him unless it was... Actually, the only time I can imagine it happening, we had a, a mini-launch at the Manchester Football Museum yep. in 2013. And there were maybe about six or seven people turned up. So that's the only thing I can imagine where that came from. Well, the book says damaged. I call it priceless. Uh, I use this because um, I was looking at a book, uh, writing a book on modern football. Um, And so I found this because it had Lionel Messi on the front, but it's got authors, uh, including the great Colin Schindler, who I must have in the library, uh, the great Jim White, whom I have had, uh, and then the three of you, uh, and Rob Steen, you write several little essays on Di Stefano and Best, no more than 800 words. But significantly, there's a chapter you've written, Sheepskin Coats and Nanny Goats. Nanny Goats meaning quotes, reporters' quotes. Uh, the book came out in 2013. It's got the former Barcelona player, the former Barcelona player, Lionel Messi, on the cover. This essay, Sheep, Sheepskin Coats and Nanny Goats, it ends with a praise of Brian Glanville. Um, who, as well as being a Jewish sports writer, is turning 90 this month. So what you're about to say is going to go into the tribute show in three weeks' time, where I've got Mark <laughs> and Joe uh, in the next um, also coming up, and we've got Nick Schapanik, Paddy Barkley, Johnny Northcroft, Anthony Clavain, and now Rob Steen, himming the great Brian Goldberg, nay Glanville. So... Um, you you worked in the same profession as Brian Glanville. Yeah, I, I, Brian, Brian, I met quite early in my journalistic career uh, because I was just doing loads and loads of football, so I'd bump into him matches, and we quite often get the train back together. And Brian, Brian loved talking. He loved people listening. He loved people talking. And me, I'd been reading him since I was about, I don't know, 10 years of age, and he was my first football writer. Who He was the guy who made me fall in love with football because of the way he wrote about it. And his book on the world... World Cup, the night of you know the history of the World Cup, which we keep updating. Of course, it's the single best book on football for me because it's history and it's written the way he writes with the depth of knowledge he has, which is both in a way sociological and technical, and you know specifically related to football. So he sort of ticks all the boxes. Plus, he writes you know really well. He's the guy with Hinterland. Um, and so on those train journeys, I would just sort of listen to him talk about the time he met Nelly Bruce or whatever. And, you know, we wouldn't often talk football. You know, he knew I was interested in boxing, so we'd talk about boxing. Um, people I know very close to were his family, part of his family. And apparently he wrote his first novel 
many years ago, and he unfortunately chose to write about his own family, which was not a clever thing to do. And I think that that's the big mistake he made in his life, oh. unfortunately. You know, I, you know, really, you, you don't do that. I mean, I'm, I'm now writing novels. There's no way on earth I would ever go anywhere near talking about my own life. You know, he wasn't a good Jewish boy, let's just put it that way. I see, yes. And Brian Goldberg, as was... Um, I didn't even know it, to be honest with you. I didn't know his name was Goldberg. I always thought Glanville was so on the level, to be honest with you. That's so why Anthony's, that. <laughs> Anthony's book was so amazing, because there's this big chapter, and I've spoken to Anthony about it, and I'll, I'll quote it in this show. Um, but he is the doyen, because he, he was the first one to bring, in, to bring football criticism into the English language. I don't know if he's told you about Willie Meisel and Hungary. Yes, no, I know. I, yeah, I know. I know the history of this stuff, you know, and I, it's very clear how important. And what, you know, also he had that, you know, that extra level. He knew Italian football. You know, he's reporting for English papers at the same time, the same match. He's reporting, he's doing a slightly different version for an Italian paper. Um, so here's a man who, who's got a broader sensibility of the game. That's why he was the man to write the World Cup book. I don't think anyone else could have written that book half as well as he did because he, you felt he travelled to these places. He, he talked to the players. Um, even when he hadn't, he'd done his research properly. He talked to people who knew the people. So he brought a journalistic aspect to fine writing, for want of a better expression. And he, he, so he had a foot in both camps. So he, he was a writer and he was a journalist. So he comes across as a kind of more benevolent Norman Mailer. Is that a good comparison or a stupid one? I tell you something, that is perfect in Brilliant. many ways because okay. I've been talking with Norman Mailer a lot recently and Norman Mailer has the ego and that Glanville almost has that you couldn't get away with in England because the American system, um, the adulation for the likes of Hemingway and Mailer and other macho writers, it, it's not the same here. What was this line? We don't, we don't look for the same thing. Indeed, there's um, Jason Cowley, who writes about Arsenal and still edits The New Statesman. Perhaps only Hugh McElvaney, yes. with his long Baroque sentences, metaphorical reach and belief in the heroic potential of sport, would not be out of place in the pages of, say, The New Yorker. Um, so Glanville and McElvaney. And is this true? Well, it obviously is because you've written it down. This is just a setup. You were I... Hugh McElvaney's sub-editor. Yes, yeah, I would have made that up. <laughs> you don't make those things up. Uh, yes, I was, I was at Sunday Times uh, between 94 and 98, and I was a reporter, a feature writer, but I was a sub-editor. So on a Saturday, I would always get assigned a huge piece, probably because I was more of a writer than all the other subs, so I would be more sensitive, etc. and dealing with him could be a little bit delicate sometimes, but he was actually an absolute pleasure to deal with. And, and his ego, uh, while it was there, it was nothing like Glanville's ego. <laughs> I see. Well, it's the so, Jewishness, isn't it? I don't think it's ego. I don't think it's ego with Jews. I think it's the confidence of being the chosen people. I, I think there's an element of that, but it's also one that one has to be careful because it's the other side of the coin, which is to be acutely aware of the jealousy that follows being a member of the Jewish chosen people, i.e. the world is jealous of us, dear boy. So <laughs> you've got to learn how to cope with that. So well, there's two ways of doing it. You can be brazen, which is Glanville, or you can be more like me. <laughs> <laughs> Just stuck in a back office for four years. Right. Save it for your writing. Save it for your writing. But don't have a big ego. 
because it doesn't help anyone. No, just look into the galaxy and realise just how small, how, how specky we are of dust. But which, that is why I think... Uh, Rob Steen, your book on the Mavericks. I've got the 1994 version. So let's go back to 1994. How many football books were on a typical shelf? I think there were about, I can think of five football books from the time. I don't know if you can think of those or more. Well, I mean, it depends on really who you're talking about, because in a sense, you would say the, the readers of books would split into two camps. There were the camp, which I wasn't a part of, that would just lap up the autobiographies because those were the books that sold, and they were the ones that, you know, fans wanted to find out how their centre-forwards love life was, or whatever the hell it might be, it doesn't matter. They want to replay the happy moments, and also debate the not-so-happy moments. So there's the autobiographies on the one hand, and on the other hand is the people who sought something more, you know, an add-on, the people who would read Glanville's book of the World Cup, um, the Football Man by Arthur Hopcroft, going back to the 60s, which was like the book that I first heard about that was something about footballers beyond the obvious. So Arthur Hopcroft, who was a Guardian Observer man, um, you know, a lot of these books were written by journalists. You had the guy, the Chelsea supporter, whose name I've now forgot, the Soccer Syndrome. John Moynihan. John Moynihan. Yes. My man with a massively popular book amongst the conoscenti, if you like, the, the more literate football fans. So Moynihan, um, Glanville, Hotcraft, Hunter. Oh, uh, yes, Hunter Davis, as in. Yep, the glory Hunter game. Day, yeah, the, the glory game. The glory game. Absolutely. And the fifth, what would I say would be the fifth? Um, God, I'm, I'm, I'm actually struggling, which is only because I haven't thought about well, it. Well, well, there's two, actually. <laughs> there's... I can't think of five straight away. Fab. Eamon Dunphy, only a game? Question mark. His diary. Yes, you're right. Absolutely. Eamon Dunphy. That's the one. That's the one. Which he kind of moved... Rebel. It moved from That's the player it. memoir to a sociology side. Exactly. Eamon Dunphy was a really bright bloke. I was in the press box a couple of times with him down the years. And he was he was a terrific... And he, he was the first person to really think hard as an ex-player it seems to me, about the context. You know, so he was probably as sharp on George Best as anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, he could see the good and the bad and was balanced, I think, in his view of George Best. And people tend to be other extremes, shall we say. Yes, and we need I mean, you know, more of that. Line, which I quote, there sorry, is... the, the line from Frank McGee in the News of the World that I quote in The Mavericks about... Football, the last thing football needs is people like Stan Bowles and George Best. And yet you, know, you also... And, you know, that's the kind of... Each chapter, I should say, has a frontispiece. The one in the Queen's Park Rangers chapter is Max Bialystok. If you've got it, flaunt it, baby, flaunt it. Uh, you've also got a lyric from Hegira, uh by uh, Joni Mitchell. And uh, you begin <laughs> gunning for trouble. We ate Arsenal, we ate Arsenal. Uh, and that's the um, Chelsea paragraph. So you deal with... Seven, and, of course, Fever Pitch, which is 30 years old next year. Nick Hornby has not visited the football library just yet. It's not been out of print. Nick Hornby, the famous fan of Cambridge United. Exactly. Well, funnily enough, um, when Mavericks was re-released last year, um, a very, very kind woman in the Times did a little piece about it one day, and her intro was, if Nick Hornby hadn't written Fever Pitch... Mavericks would be the, the kind of the first of those memoir type books, and I, I thought that was very sweet about it. it. It was very much. I but the funny thing is, when I first had the idea of the Mavericks, Fever Pitch hadn't been published because I carried around that I'd been 
writing books since 88. Feverbitch came out in 92. I had the Mavericks idea, you know, I was trying to sell it and failing miserably for about four years because I I had it that this is the book I wanted to write about because I'd kind of fallen out of love with football, but I wanted to remember the days when I did love football and work out what had gone wrong. And in a way, the Mavericks was my way of saying, well, look at English football in, you know, now, the standard of the international team particularly, and look at the talent that was wasted, that set, if you like, the tone for wasting talent. And when I wrote the book, you know, Matt Letizier was like, you know, the, the case in point. You know, that guy, why that guy or how that guy was not made more use of as an international player I, I still, I mean, I know why, but it's still a tragedy to my mind in pure football terms. And because you read the Sunday Times piece on Billie Jean King, I imagine you saw Rod Liddell in one of his more sentient moments, writing that pragmatism won out over flair in the 1970s. And he used the example of Jack Grealish and how he barely played at the Euros and Phil Foden as well. So the Maverick era, we love a Maverick, but only when they play for the team. So it's very difficult when you have a Maverick in the Jurgen Klopp, Thomas Tuchel team. They can't be a luxury player. I wonder if football at elite level is growing tired of the luxury player. I don't know if you can comment on that because you don't watch very much football. But No, 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 no to be fair, I've, I've, seen enough, look, I've seen enough international football particularly. I've seen enough you know, Champions League finals okay. um, to see what the best have to offer. So I'm no doubt the talent is there. I think what's happened, the big shift has been that footballers are much more career conscious. You know, they can earn so much more money at it. They have got so much more of a public profile. They've got to be a lot more careful. Use of agents is far greater. You know, you're nobody if you don't have an agent now, whereas George Best was one of the first to have an agent in football. So, you know, things have changed fundamentally since that time. However, I think, you know, having not seen Grealish, frankly, until the Euros, and seen enough of him to see what everyone's talking about, and Foden as well. You know, I thought cracking players, both of them, really what I want to see play. I think it's football's failure to accommodate these talents, which is the biggest problem for me watching football. If I felt that football had found a way of not being so scared of failure and that sphere has grown rather than receded, that they won't take the risks that are necessary in order to make the most of a player like a Jack Grealish. If you want to turn him into a world beater, you're going to have to be a bit more indulgent, a bit tolerant, not treat everybody the same. That was the David Gower story. Not every person in a team is the same, and that's it's true in any working environment. The best leaders, the best managers are those people like a Mutt Busby, for example, with George Best. He's got George Best in one corner, he's got Bobby Charlton in the other, in the middle, he might have a, a thug, you know, and he's trying to juggle all that. Nobby Styles was yes. a little bit of a thug. So he's got three completely different styles of players that he is accommodating, and they win. Now, that was in the 60s. We've advanced so much more now in terms of coaching techniques, etc., etc., and you would hope man management but I'm not sure about the man management bit. Yeah, we'll now. get to managers shortly. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to do this to you, but we are now 28 years on after the first publication of The Mavericks. 28 years before the publication of The Mavericks, the year was 1966. So that puts everything into context. Yeah. But you also, when the book came out, you wrote that Eric Cantona was the Premier League's one Maverick. Has he been replaced in the last 25 years? Have we had 
a maverick. Well, I think, it, look, we, we came close to somebody like, um, was it Balotelli? Yes. Was he in, was he playing brief Manchester? You've had, um, in terms of sheer talent, you had Zola, uh, Bergkamp. Absolutely, these, these wonderful Hullet. But in terms of kind of all the baggage that goes with it, so as with Maradona, for example, or best, Cantana, Cantona is one of those people. He didn't give an F for anybody. What anyone thought, he did his own thing. And I think that, you know, Ferguson's, you know, <laughs> the greatest thing about Ferguson for me is the fact that, he, you know, he allowed Cantona to have his head. He knew how good he was. And he built a team around a team that could support him but accepted that here was a bloke who might well go into the crowd and kung fu kick a supporter who was abusing him. That wasn't entirely unexpected, Mm. that he was capable of something like that. So image of the game being what it is, people are much more conscious of all that because the way it's projected everywhere at all times of the day, it's harder to get away with someone who's that much of a maverick, if you like. Um, It's also... You know, very, very different is the whole drinking culture, which I don't need to go on about. That drinking culture still existed in the 90s, whereas you're struggling to find it now, or at least any evidence of it. No, everyone's um, I'm sure it now. goes on to everyone's being quiet and clever. You know, they're being sensible and thinking long term. They're looking at, and maybe they're looking at George Best and thinking that guy's finished at 27. I don't want to go on till I'm 35. I can set myself up for the rest of my life. George Best never even thought those, those terms. He wanted to enjoy every day. And that, in a sense, I suppose, is what separates the Mavericks, who are the kind of people who do live for today. You know, Tony Curry, slightly different from the rest of them, but these were kind of instinctive people who were were indulged, absolutely, because they were heroes, football heroes, so they could get away with a lot. But they stepped over the line in many respects, and you could see why managers got alienated. But they were challenged to the authority of the manager, and the managers... More, more often than not, didn't have the footballing brains or whatever, or uh, the ability to handle individuals, because they wanted to impose their authority like a schoolmaster, rather than seeing a team as something that is made up of lots of different parts, and that we have to think how do we bring the best out of those parts. God, you know, maybe uh, the guy AC Milan, exactly. who I think I talked about in Maverick. You know, oh, maybe sorry. he's an exception. <laughs> Yeah, Saki, the manager who... Oh, no. yeah. The guy, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. He mm. seems to be one of the really rare exceptions to this. You still have to play by his rules, but there was width there. There was lateral thinking. But he's a rarity, it seems to me. What about Bielsa? I read enough about him about three or four years ago to know he's clearly a maverick. And if Leeds, as a result of him, are where they are now, I don't know enough about the story to be able to say that with any authority. Ah, well... Then absolutely, you know... I can recommend... He's such rarities... Yeah, for sure. I can recommend two books. Rocco Dean has written one about the two seasons that Bielsa took Leeds up to the Premier League. And Tim Rich, whom you may know very well, has written The Quality of Madness. I know Tim, yes, I yeah. do. Yes, I do know Tim. I remember Tim when he was about 20. Um, yes, I, I, the thing is, honestly, man, I cannot... I'm trying to remember the last football book I read, and outside of the ones I've had to read because I wrote them. And I, and I think I, I was tempted to read Matt Dickinson's book on Bobby Moore... Uh, that was the last one, maybe. Oh, no, but, oh, yeah, sorry, Duncan Hamilton. Duncan Hamilton's first book on cloth. I read that. That would have been the last football book I Which read. Which is one of the best. Provided That's You Don't Kiss book. Me is just... Okay. He's superb. Mm. Duncan, 
Duncan is a wonderful writer and he's been there where it matters. He knows what he's talking about. He's talking to the people who's concerned. He's done the job. You know, he lived with Cluffy and he knows probably better than anyone why Clough, much as we would love to have seen him as manager of England, I ain't so sure he would have been do much better job. He might have done it for a couple of years, but his ego was so immense. Years? The idea of any footballer. In and out the door in two minutes. He would be like Bielsa when he left a well, job I, after about two hours. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked because he's not a blazer guy. Don, no, Revy was barely a blazer guy. I, oh, I mean, but Ralph Revy and Ramsey, you know, just killed it for me. End of the day. And that's the great sadness, I suppose, is that go back to 66 and as you did a few minutes ago, um, you know, that was my first experience of football that, that summer. And I couldn't have asked for anything better. I had Everton coming from two goals down to beat Sheffield Wednesday, 3-2 at Wembley. And I had England winning the World Cup. Now, you couldn't have asked for a better start as a football fan, an English football fan, than that. And yet, even in 66, even at the age of eight, I could see the difference between, say, Portugal and England, Brazil and England, Hungary and England. And you could see where this one was going. And that come 70, when the side is better, they were still quite easily beaten by a German side and who were not as good as the Italians, who were not as good as the Brazilians. So the frustrating thing for me, come back to 74, was that the players were there this time. The real skill levels to compete with Brazil, etc., were there. And yet they weren't picked or they weren't picked not very often and they hardly ever played together. So in the book, that's why I put together my fantasy in 1974. <laughs> Brilliant. You know, because I really felt that if they'd got the right manager, now Joe Mercer, and he got the job in 72 after England lost to West Germany in the European nations, semi quarterfinals. If Mercer got the job then, rather than waiting two years and having a, a brief dalliance, then they might have had a chance because Joe Mercer, together with Malcolm Ellison, knew kind of thing how to cope with a few Mavericks and won things. The Mavericks elicited more hypocrisy than a would-be woman priest. We treasure them because they embrace risk, because they dared not to give a damn, because most of all, they dared on our behalf. The moral of 70s England seems clear. Hubris never pays. Let's talk about some of these hubrists. Uh, Alan Hudson, was he the one who would wake up in the morning and say, do you know what, I think today's a brandy day. <laughs> the, funny thing, the funny thing is, more than one of them could have said that. Uh, yes. that's, that's the thing. I mean, the common denominator is booze. There's no question about that. You know, you've got one with the betting, uh, one with the, the, you know, Osgood with the women. Um, but booze was the great common denominator. And of all the boozers... Huddy was the, you know, the biggest, but, you know, he would argue, and, I, and I, I only saw him recently, about a year ago, we had a drink in his local in Fulham Road, and it was his life. He could play football like that, as best could, as Gary Sobers could play cricket, as Dennis Compton could play cricket. You know, it didn't have to be the death of your, your career if you boozed. Um, but eventually it told, because, you know, what, what else was it going to do unless you were so good? So, like, Sobers is the example of somebody who was so good, he'd get away with everything. You know, both of them as well. Maradona. You know, these guys were so good. If you were just a notch below that, and also I think there was a tendency, once we had best was gone, and the, if you like, the moral of the best story, which is, you know, you flame out too young, 
you, you're no good for the long haul, despite all your talent. Um, and anyone who was less than best, which is basically everybody else, um, they weren't going, it wasn't going to happen. Not in that generation. I thought it might have a, have a chance now. So I look at Grealish, sorry, coming back to the whole Grealish-Foden thing, I think they've got a better chance of prospering now than they had 50 years ago, 30 well, we years ago. I mean, shall no see. Still not great. When you were drinking with Alan, did he mention about wanting to get his England caps deleted from the permanent record? Uh, no, but it's just the latest in a, a an ongoing saga. Look, of all of the Mavericks, he's the one. It hurts him the most, the fact he only got two caps for England, one against Cyprus in a game, you know, which was <laughs> didn't really matter too much, uh, and one against Germany, West Germany, when he was man of the match. And that single match kind of killed his career in many ways. Didn't kill his self-esteem, but that sense of injustice that he felt, having waited that long, you know, when he could have been selected for the 70 World Cup squad at 18, and, you know, Ramsey not got cold feet, and then come 75, he's man of the match against the world champions. OK, are not full strength, West Germany, but nevertheless, West Germany. And he, he plays once more for England. I mean, you know, you, you, you can't blame him. All his bitterness is thoroughly justified. And yet he's not, he's not really a bitter bloke at all. He's a lovely bloke. Really sweet. He's the one, only one of the Mavericks I've remained friends with. Uh-huh. And it says a lot about him. Not so about me. It says a lot about him. Dave Webb Fact says that, that he never down, grew up. No, I don't think he did. I think, look, you come through the system. He came to Chelsea. Well, he made his debut, what, 69, 1969. You know, he's 18, 17 years of age. He comes into a side with Charlie Cook and Peter Osgood. Two absolute Kings Road heroes at the time when Kings Road was almost like the centre of the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys are gods. And Hudson, who's, who's better than all of them in terms of, you know, not just sort of individual skill, but the way he plays as a midfielder. He's a link man with knobs on. He's, his sense of... It's not fair. Yeah. Life is <laughs> unfair. We know. He was supposed to, I think, he, look, he's a classic example of someone who... And Marsh may be as well. You know, Rodney Marsh is an older bloke. He was the oldest of the Mavericks. He'd come through the system a bit to get to QPR. To, sorry, get to Manchester City. But he had the attitude which was summed up the Mavericks is, you know, do your own thing, but just be prepared to pay the consequences. Marsh was prepared to play the consequences more than anyone because he's been the, the most successful of them. He's made a lot of money through his celebrity, more so than he ever made as a footballer. I thought he was and, brilliant you know, on, um, on Soccer um, Saturday. You know, Always brilliant. Because he's, he's a good thinker. The key is he's a clever bloke. Go back to when he was with Fulham. You know, he, he would have arguments that could only be settled by, you know, getting an encyclopedia from a library. So he'd stop the team bus <laughs> and they'd get off, get a book from a library and settle the argument. Now, can you imagine that happening now? I no. can't imagine that. No, because we all have smartphones, but that's not... I know what you mean. The fact that that was important enough to get to stop the team coach to get off. Yeah. Anything was important enough to do that. And, and I'll tell, tell, tell you one thing. If you were to stop the coach for Stan Bowles, I have a feeling I know where he would go. Uh, he's written a, a memoir, which yeah. I haven't read yet. Um, but Pete Doherty of the Libertines idolised Stan Bowles. And I think of... of well, that's where he got all the ideas from. Yeah. All, you know, Stan didn't give an F about anything. He was just a lad from Manchester 
who didn't, you know, ran around with the wrong crowd, you know, and knew Phil Linnett's mum and, you know, and she was a prostitution, all the, the gangs and the prostitutes, and that's the environment he grew up in. And he didn't give an F for anybody or anything. The fact that he ended up having a, a good a second marriage um, was much to his credit, but he calmed down a fair bit then, by then. But, you know, a lovely bloke. You, you know, you never take any offence by anything Stan Bowles would say. He was just a very light-hearted sweet guy who you know <laughs> could have made more of himself but i don't think he ever really bothered him in all honesty that's brilliant he really didn't care true to yourself and we we saw that in the obituaries of frank worthington and we saw the goal being replayed and uh, my mum's partner's a leicester fan and has tales of being around frank um and frank notes very early on in your book the Mavericks, English football when flair wore flares. Football became part of the pop industry and Rodney Marsh adds, well, it was bigger than pop because it was everybody. It was women and girls as well as men and boys. I suppose you'd agree with that. And and when I imagine the Mavericks, I've got Slade playing in my head. Just the back catalogue of Slade. You know, know, it's no coincidence that, you know, if you think about football songs in terms of hits, should we say, you know, it, it starts with really with Back Home in 1970. And she blew into the colour with Chelsea, I think, the same year. Yeah. And then we have the Arsenal one follows and the other one. But, but you know, that's when it starts, when you see football teams on top of the pops you know, singing songs. Um, you know, the, the Chaz and Dave thing follows a bit later with Ardiles, etc. But it all starts then. And the fact that, you know, the George Best, this is why George Best is, you know, the centre of all of this. Because this is a footballer with long hair. You know, he's the guy who's called, in 1966, he's the fifth Beatle. El Beatles, they called him in Portugal. You know, he's the great link between the pop world and the football world. And because West played the game the way he did, the flair and the rebelliousness that he embodied, you know, that's what pop music was about. You know, showing creativity, but not, you know, doffing the cap to the older generation. And, you know, the two of them together were very, very potent. And so people like Marsh grew up at the same time as the Beatles. You know, he, the Beatles were here in the time when he was already a professional yeah, footballer. Yeah. So he wasn't quite of that lot. Someone like Hudson, Hudson had already had, you know, known about the Beatles since he was 13 or something like that. He'd lived with all that. Best had done pretty similar. He was only a little bit older. Um, so it was absolute coming together of the two, you know, the great phenomenons, the, the football drug and the pop drug, the music drug. You know, the music had never been as popular as it was in the 60s. And football had this great, you know, revival up to a point. <laughs> yeah, and, and David <laughs> Tussle has written about the... Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, London I know, Tussle, well. Good man, Tussle. Yeah, he's he writes more, more books than anyone I know. He's a, a prolific author and... Uh, Certainly has written more football books than you have. Uh, this book, The Mavericks, actually, we'll talk about Charlie George. Charlie George scored four against Real Madrid, but was on the losing side. Particularly keen to talk about how he was literally a one in a 40,000 player. You, you do really well about chronicling what it was like to play for an elite team coming through. And as someone who's got a book out next year about the FA Youth Cup, um, watching that and watching the numbers... Uh, in that chapter, Gunning for Trouble with Charlie George. It is a really good anthology-worthy chapter. He's still with us, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I mean, you know, the great sadness about, about Charlie George is that he is a guy who started his career really as a, as a striker. 
and gains fame and legendary status through a cup-winning goal that you know most would dream to get. And yet that, that game against uh, Real Madrid that you mentioned, by then, he's lying behind the front runners, he's sometimes picking the ball up even you know from the back four. And here's a guy doing so much more work than he ever did for Arsenal. And they find the right role for him at Derby. And that, that in this, you know, and he only makes he makes his only England appearance in what again seventy five, and he gets what taken off after an hour, and then Revy had no idea what to do with him. And it was a classic case. Revy picks George as you know Bowles was picked sometimes because of media pressure. Everyone's saying you've got a chit team. Try this player. You've got to play this player. So you pick them once. You pick them twice. Oh, let them hang themselves. Don't make the most of them. Don't really make build a team around them or learn about how to get the most out of them. You know, Rev Revy thought he could manage England the way he managed Leeds. And it's two different jobs. And that's the go and I think George suffered from that maybe more than anyone else. Because at least at least at least Hudson got two full games. Yes. You know, George gets an hour. That's Monsters. all. And it, you know, you look at that guy, 20, 20, that great goal against Liverpool in the final, but that particularly that the peak of his career is that game against Real Madrid. It showed you everything that he was capable of doing. And it was a lot more than 99% of English footballers at that time. Osgood was similar. Osgood could play midfield or attack. And had he not, you know, the great tragedy of Osgood is that had Emlyn Hughes not broken his leg in autumn 1966, he would have been even better. Yeah. And then they couldn't have not picked. But he lost all his pace. Like Michael Owen. He was never the same player after I get bored easily. Yes. That's why yeah. I've had three wives. That's my favourite line from Peter Osgood. <laughs> he was a bit of a boy, to say the least. He oh. was the of the Mavericks. He was the most arrogant, the most arrogant of the Mavericks, definitely. That's right. Although that's what Alan he Hudson was, loved yeah. about him. Uh, just with the so the Mavericks was reprinted by Bloomsbury. Is that the great Matt Lowing? It is indeed. in charge of Bloomsbury Sport. I must get him on. Uh, he once turned down my book, but I really don't hold it against him because he has to make money. Bloomsbury published uh, Kevin Day's brilliant book uh, called Who Are You? But they re- uh, republished the Mavericks in 2020. A, how did they get hold of the manuscript? And B, well done on them keeping the cover and making it pop even more than the original uh, cover. Well, I, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a little bit of the credit for it. I mean, the Mavericks was my idea in the first place, and I was very conscious of uh, the 25th anniversary coming up, uh, given that, the way football had changed and everything that happened. I thought, you know, and, and I'd noticed how many people were wearing Stan Bowles T-shirts and, you know, this biography's coming out, that autobiography's coming out. I thought, well, these people are still being talked about all the time. So I thought, well, you know, there's got to be a market there. So I approached Matt because my previous two books have been through Bloomsbury, thought naturally go to the publisher you'd been through. And Matt said, oh, no, we don't do reprints. I said, I've heard that, but um, this might be an exception. And he said, yes. (laughs) Because, and where I was lucky, was that Matt himself had read the book. If it had been most other editors, they wouldn't have heard of the book, so I probably would have lost it without them even reading it. But because he'd heard of the book and he bought it when it came out, I had a, you know, <laughs> a captive audience, shall we say. He's great. Bumped into him in Waterstones and uh, he was looking at all his stock there. And Bloomsbury do publish, I think, six or seven books a year. And The Mavericks was republished last year. Uh, it is available with a new intro and outro uh, to get all Bonzo Dog on you. But um, what did you write in this, in the new material? Well, I just... Well, basically, it was it, it, 
it was one that was the obvious thing to do. How had football changed since 1994? That was really the, the first bit, the front bit. Um, and the second bit was after going to see the Diego Maradona documentary, the fantastic day, Diego Maradona documentary. And I remember, you know, just coming up with this, this thought that what happens if he'd been born in Birmingham rather than Buenos Aires? Would he still be Diego Maradona? Or would he play 15 internationals like Rodney Marsh? I kind of came to the conclusion that it would have been the latter. Oh. Because I think he would have been in too much trouble and he wouldn't have got, you know, no matter how good he'd have been. So, you know, you could parallel with George Best, if you like. Had George Best been English as opposed to Irish, would he have made 100 appearances for England? I doubt it. It's the great counterfactuals. Two things coming yeah, from that. Two things from that. One, Diego Maradona's biography, the first posthumous one, uh, you can't libel the dead. Guillaume Balaguer has written it. And two, did you know that Gary Lineker and Diego Maradona, if Maradona had indeed been born in Leicester to the son of a greengrocer, they would have been schoolmates in the same year? <laughs> I didn't know that at same, all. Same, only four um, weeks And if you love, a bit like, you know, the whole Lineker story in a way, is, you know, Lineker was cleverer, is cleverer, than the vast majority of footballers. Bilingual. And everything that's governed his career. I remember when I first saw him, I, you, you heard about that like, Lineker was a little bit different to most of the footballers. He thought a little bit, he, he, you know, and whereas, so that I think has always helped him, but he was never a maverick, never a maverick. Whereas Maradona, I think he'd have been given short shrift here. Well, I certainly don't think he'd have won us a World Cup. Perhaps I can finish on this. The book is The Mavericks, English Football, When Flair Wore Flares. I can lend you... Well, in fact, it's on the shelves of the football library. Uh, the photo is the famous one of... Is it Frank Worthington and Stan Bowles having a snog? No, 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 no. Alan Birchinell and Tony Curry, and I found the photo, and it was something I insisted was on the cover. I said, you know, that the, book, the cover is the book in so many ways. Yeah. And particularly right now, the idol of kissing at a time in history we're in now was such a wonderful image. It's 10 times better than it was in 1994 for me. Yeah, and it, it does pop on the page. Uh, the best book of the year is Pat Nevin's book, The Accidental Footballer, uh, which is the story of his time as a professional uh, with more to come. I knew him, yes. Did you read? I was watching on Breach News at the time. I haven't. I haven't. I've just not. I've got not got any interest to read football books, mate. I'm sorry. Read his. Uh, read his. Nevin, it's not about I football. It's about John Peel. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. We shared a lot of the same musical tastes. Ah, would um, you? I will read it for you. I should read it. No, you've got loads of stuff to do. Have you got another book to write? Um, halfway through my trilogy. Oh, tell us about the novels. Oh, it's okay. Let's just say. It's about sexuality, it's about now, it's about religion, and it's got virtually nothing to do with sports. Brilliant. Change of direction, shall we say. I've got to prove myself all over again. So oh, um, it's a challenge, and I'm, lo- and I'm loving it. And it's just, you know, when you spend 40 years writing about in one area, and you get a chance to do something completely different, it's very nice. Well, they will still be able to go into the football library because they are books by Rob Steen. The Mavericks, English football when flair wore flares. This copy is six ninety nine. I believe the reprint is nine ninety nine. published by Bloomsbury. Uh, Rob, I must say to you, Happy New Year. And to you as well. In fact, I, I, I don't know what day it is. It must be quite early this year. Very early. comes in on the Monday night, the week after this goes out. 
You're joking. I, the 6th of September. That's like the library!